0: The same but worse. Uh, this is Marshall Steinbaum along with my colleagues. Are we supposed to say our names? You are. Oh, we didn't go over this in the, in the pre-production meeting.
1: <laughs> this is not on the agenda. Uh, I'm
0: Andrew Hart. And I'm Jerry Vinokrove. And we're very pleased to have my uh, dear friend and colleague, uh, Professor De Paul, join us on this episode. Uh DePaul, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you for having me
0: centric uh, is a professor of law at wayne state university uh, and an expert on antitrust labor history and righteousness in general um so she's on the podcast to continue our discussion of issues of power in the economy um and her research on that subject so uh, uh I before I get into the subject of your uh, scholarship, which we will discuss at length, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal background, because I think that's uh, relevant to this conversation. So I know that you have a past prior to your academic life of being a a lawyer out in the field representing actual people. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that got you into the uh, uh, area of scholarship in which you've been so productive?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I um, represented uh, for several years, it, the the concentration of each of these groups sort of changed over time, but overall I represented workers, unions, and civil rights plaintiffs, um, sort of starting out maybe a little bit more with workers and civil rights plaintiffs, and then sort of workers and unions, and then um, sort of primarily working with unions for and organizing campaigns for my last couple of years before um, before doing my fellowship, like baby professorship at UCLA, which is where I taught the workers' rights litigation clinic and continued to work with, um, the port trucking campaign in LA. So we've been hearing a lot about the ports, obviously, and the Southern California ports in particular, and the, um, supply chain bottlenecks a little bit less now, but, uh, certainly er- at earlier points during the pandemic. And, um, a lot of that focused on port truck drivers, which is what this particular campaign that I was working um, with and on. Um, that's you know that's the workforce that that campaign centered on, and this is a workforce that um, you know changed dramatically actually back in the early '80s, following um, deregulation. So previously, the you know trucking markets were coordinated through the ICC. Uh, So, um, you know, maybe we'll get into discussing that a little bit more in the discussion different modes of market governance, but at any rate, um, you know, rate, you know, rate setting was handled sort of through this public process that all and also, obviously, the industry was highly unionized represented by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and um, And so following deregulation, which is, you know, really something that started under Carter, the bottom fell out of the trucking market very, very quickly. And so there was, you know, there was nothing in the sort of deregulatory actions and statutes and regulations that directly addressed unionization, but the rampant price competition that began um, sort of with the dismantling of the earlier sort of mode of market governance led to rapid exit of union firms and replacement with non-union firms. And then very quickly on the heels of that um, with independent contractor labor. Uh, So, I mean, but what really drove that is sort of the bottom falling out of sort of any type of price stability in that market, which had previously been sort of directly supported by, by this public agency. So I guess this is a really long answer to your personal background question. It was hard not to go into that to explain it. So,
0: which was my intention in asking it. So, okay, continue. Okay,
2: so, so another point. So, so previously that unionized workforce had been, you know, mostly white, maybe somewhat Latino, um, in the in Southern California anyway, and and then the so the demograph so demographically the workforce changed a lot as well. Um, and particularly in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of Central American immigrants you know that entered that workforce and brought with them traditions of labor solidarity um, which I think contributed to sort of this next development, which was that while there was no longer really a union presence in any robust way, in response to certain you know various localized market conditions in the 90s and the early 2000s, there were a series of wildcat strikes. That's not the full explanation because that, um, you know, this also occurred in Miami and some other places, uh, which, you know, maybe didn't have those exact demographics, but in any case, that occurred in Southern California. And these port truck drivers found themselves sued by private actors, terminal operators, um, and also investigated by the FTC at one point. That didn't last too long, but it but it did occur. Um, for supposedly, you know, for section, you know, Sherman Act section one violations for, you know, they're concerted walking off the job in pursuit of a higher price. Uh, so I, I, you know, as old as I am, I was not actually around for that uh, episode <laughs> of things. Uh, but then later on, when I did come onto the campaign in, uh, I guess it was 20, late 2011, um, that was still in sort of relatively recent memory and certainly was still shaping the campaign in the following sense, that when a national labor organization sort of did re-enter that sector to try to reorganize this workforce, and that occurred in the early 2000s, I wasn't around for that either. um, But when that occurred, there was really this strong memory of these antitrust prosecutions and it really shaped what the campaign was willing to do in including in terms of sort of the risks they would take with organizing because you know sort of now you have a national labor organization involved with the teamsters again um you've got you know a treasure a union treasury on the line and so i think it uh probably encouraged some conservatism um about organizing. But so then there were other strategies that were tried at the local level to sort of create employee status and even unionization by fiat. Those were actually challenged precisely on a federal preemption theory under the federal statutes that constituted, you know, transport deregulation. This was also before my time on the campaign. And and so then when that occurred, you know, when there was sort of like a bad ruling at the the Ninth Circuit level, that's when um, the campaign was like, okay, we're going to have to do old fashioned misclassification lawsuits and we're going to have to sort of do this uh, and and ground level organizing and that was around the you know that was exactly the time that I got involved and so I heard sort of like a version of this story. So coming into this campaign sort of laterally from doing sort of worker and union side litigation and some arbitrations, it was an exciting opportunity for me to sort of, you know, work directly on a campaign alongside organizers and not just be like the lawyer back in the office doing litigation. Um, and so I jumped at that chance. But it also, so I didn't wasn't coming from antitrust litigation, but I was, you know, coming from already being pretty embedded in the la labor movement um because that's sort of how it was and, and i think still is i not i didn't come from an antitrust practice background but was immediately intrigued horrified you know that that uh th- that these were the events that had sort of shaped the campaign and i'd sort of filed it away um in my mind so when that sort of wrapped up because it, it was like a special project and so when that wrapped up um and I, you know, went to UCLA to do this clinical fellowship. Um, you know, this was what I chose to work on. You know, the the to kind of learn what, what had happened and why and what this all meant. And so that and that's how I started on this path. And then so, eventually I, but, led me to meet Marshall a few years. The line. <laughs> on, on a
0: memorable phone call, which we may get to in a moment. Um, just to uh, make clear for listeners. The nature of like, for example, the bad Ninth Circuit ruling. Like what exactly is the source of antitrust liability for wildcat uh labor action on the part of pork truck drivers, just to make that very clear.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. But just to clarify, because I think I was covering a lot of ground there, that bad ninth circuit ruling was not an antitrust ruling. That okay. was a federal preemption. Um, I see. I see. So okay. and it was I didn't explain that at all. It okay. was federal preemption of the local policy that would basically so it is kind of interesting. I mean it. Uh-huh exactly prepped to talk about this, but I can, I can give you the basics. So what the campaign had done, and this was before my time again, mm-hmm. was, but what the campaign had done was sort of to organize politically on the local level and to, because the city of LA actually owns that property, the, the Port of LA property. So um, they researched and decided that they could basically use, you know, organize at the city council level and basically, you know, make it a condition of doing business on Port of LA property that you use the employee model um, as a trucking company, you know, to come on. And so, and so the, the city is doing this sort of in its, capacity as owner of the, you know, of of that property. That was the idea. And then there were other provisions, you know, there were, you know. um,
0: Okay, so so the Ninth Circuit, the bad ruling on preemption is saying that that is preempted by the National Labor Relations Act?
2: No, by the, um, so this is where I'm forgetting the exact name of the statute, Uh but basically, the federal statute that the f- oh that
0: deregulated f- the trucking industry said so that you okay. the,
2: i remember one of them it's the f quad a the f-a-a-a-a okay. you know that <laughs> which constitutes transport deregulation okay. but then there's another statute um the acronym for which i'm i'm forgetting i will just note that i did not work on this case or you know, <laughs> nobody, you know, nobody is judging that. the quality so, of your legal um,
0: representation here so i don't think you have <laughs> yeah. to worry about this
2: no this was before i was involved in any way but it is what led to my involvement because so then you know sort of when they didn't get a f- favorable preemption ruling and and actually it was you know they got actually got an okay ruling on some of the environmental provisions in that policy because it was also this blue green alliance but this was actually kind of bad because what happened was that those and some of those environmental provisions were upheld which is a good thing in the abstract but in the combine with the combination of overruling the employee provision of the city of LA policy this actually meant, um, you know, uh, sort of some really bad, you know, borderline debt slavery arrangements that obtained mm. in the early years of this because now the truck drivers had to upgrade to clean trucks.
0: Which uh, they didn't have okay, okay, and that, and that, okay. And they weren't being paid money. enough, but they were obligated to do so. Uh,
2: and it ensnared you know. them in, like, there were a variety of things. Like, there were, you know, there were there was sort of, like, you have to go take out this Bank of America loan with, you know, there was also, like, we're just going to rent you the trucks. And, you know, there, mm-hmm. but it, it tied them to, I mean, you should study this, Marshall, actually. Really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I but, mean, because this is uh, Labor
0: Exploitation uh, 101.
2: But it wasn't, but not, but like, at. but labor exploitation, but debt exploitation. Though. Right,
0: right, 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 right. I mean, uh, you know, we see that a lot. Okay, uh, so sorry, just to go back to the premise of my question about the Ninth Circuit ruling, uh, explain what the source of liability is in the Wildcat strike. So you're saying the FTC investigated and so on, just to tee up the rest of your I Yeah, skeleton. and, and
2: just to, if I want to be really fine-grained about it, the FTC investigation never got to the point that they, you know, would tell you exactly these are the counts or whatever. It didn't last that long. But of course, it would be sort of the 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 sort of ba- the basic theory of liability is that this is um impermissible horizontal coordination beyond firm boundaries under section 1 of the Sherman Act sometimes called price fixing um but it could also be you know because these cases never got that far um it could also be you know sort of illegal collusion in withholding supply which is treated just about the same way that um a straight price fixing is and the key you know case on that is FTC v Superior Court Trial Lawyers Association, which is a 1991 case. I always forget the exact year, Um, you know, where the lawyer strike case, as it's sometimes called, where panel attorneys in D.C., you know, basically struck in pursuit of a higher rate from the District of Columbia. And the FTC ended up investigating this and ended up getting um, prosecuted and, you know, appealed. to i guess the dc circuit and then and then ultimately to to the us supreme court and and that sort of created the precedent that would be sort of most clearly applicable to these wildcat strikes
0: Yeah, so the idea is there's these uh, uh, lawyers who uh, contract with the uh, District of Columbia to represent uh, plaintiffs, they're saying, well, we're not paid enough, Uh, we're not going to take any more clients until you pay us more, and the ruling from the Supreme Court is basically that that is an illegal uh, uh, conspiracy among multiple firms because these, these Lawyers are contractors, so they're uh, jointly agreeing to withhold labor, which counts as a, uh, a cartel within the meaning of the uh, of Section One of the Sherman Act.
2: Exactly, I didn't say the c word, but indeed a cartel. <laughs> well, I'll um, say the c and, word,
0: even though, because I, you know, I assume that the things that I say are, are false, whereas you don't say things that aren't that aren't true. So uh, I'll say that. <laughs>
2: um, and I mean, so like. Like maybe one tiny correction that's not really material. The so they represented indigent defendants, um, and you know not plaintiffs. And they, in that case, really were small firms. I mean, they were sole proprietors, and maybe you know maybe they had a secretary. You know, the, the vast majority of them were sole practitioners, though. And they didn't argue the labor exemption in that case. So the, you know, so the way that the court analyzed it was not that it was withholding labor, but that it was withholding, you know, services in a commercial services market. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more and what the yeah. difference is. Um, but they they didn't really argue the labor exemption in that case. They argued a First Amendment defense for their for the expressive activity. And the other very weird thing, obviously, and which I'm, is you know apparent to you, is that it's crazy that the you know Supreme Court sort of ran with the 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 particular economic theory that it did in that case given that there's literally one buyer for the services here the district of Columbia and it's unilaterally setting the rate so the idea that this is a competitive market is obviously absurd yeah so that was that was the background of the case but the but that is exactly how one would anticipate that courts would also handle the wildcat strikes by the truck drivers who, while not having the professional status of the lawyers, otherwise would be treated as legally and economically equivalent by the courts.
0: Which brings me to the uh, great uh, uh, core of your scholarship. Um, But before, actually I shouldn't say it quite brings me there because I want you to tell us a little bit about what the conventional wisdom of the Sherman Act and its history is, and its and its legislative intent before you give us your groundbreaking interpretation thereof. So wait,
2: wait, wait. wait. What am I supposed to do?
0: <laughs> well, so you're saying, uh, and uh, you've given us numerous examples of where uh, uh, workers coming together or operating okay. collectively in order to uh, withhold labor or uh, uh, services, whatever you want to conceive it, is found mm-hmm. to be liable under Section One of the Sherman Act. Many antitrust authorities consider that to be the proper enforcement of what the sherman act prohibits yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so i'm asking you to sort of characterize where that idea would come from that this is the correct and and just to sort of give a oh, okay. a, a little bit of a background here you know i like there's a nice um quote in uh, uh richard white's um uh, history of the transcontinental railroads where he he refers to the sherman act as an arrow that was aimed at, at capital that ended up hitting labor um and so this sort of gives us exactly yeah. the background to the cases that you mentioned.
2: Okay, so I have to answer that in a more complicated way than you probably want, but <laughs> I, I I think you want me to talk about the development of the cases, though, and not the not the legislative history. Is that no, I do want,
0: want you to talk about. Yeah. The, well, I want you to Eventually, tell us what other people think about the legislative history, and then tell us what you think about.
2: Well, it. I don't. Okay, so I'll, I'll give my complicated answer. So <laughs> I actually think so. This is one of the points in. My book that I'm finishing very soon. It's not finished yet, but it's about to be finished. But this particular, you know, these, these chapters actually are finished, which is so we can talk about this, like whether it's just of sort of antiquarian interest or if it's more than that. I think it's a little more than that, but it is, but it is certainly just interesting in an antiquarian vein, which is that actually the price fixing precedent is a really separate line and strand from the labor coordination precedent in because so pre labor exemption I know we haven't gotten there yet and you probably have a question teed up on that so but you know at a certain point we have this thing called the labor exemption to antitrust law but that didn't exist at the you know when when the Sherman Act was originally passed because you you, know, you didn't ask for this but because the legislators didn't think it was needed because they you know they didn't think the courts were going to do this and they thought that that was uh, fairly obvious but regardless there was because there wasn't a labor exemption right away we do have a line of cases sort of from 1890 to you know really through the 1930s because the Clayton act was they just like ran roughshod over the labor exemption in the Clayton act but so we have this early jurisprudence on sort of you know on regulating labor coordination under the Sherman act and i would read that line of cases as Entirely distinct from the line of cases on price fixing, which I also so I I contest both found, you know, sort of normative foundations of the Sherman Act that that it was meant to con, um, you know, constrain labor coordination in the way that it did, but also that it was meant to constrain cord- horizontal coordination among smallholders, you know, um, if we're going to consider them separately from workers. That's why I was wondering if you read the fisherman section of the chapter. You should read it because I think you'll find it interesting. Because th- those are people who are never going to be employees under any, you know, even under sort of a, the most liberalized test for employee status. They're never, you know, fishermen who own their own boats and decide when they fish and go, and then even they're, though they're dealing with much more powerful fish processors or canners, they're never going to be, you know, assuming that. So there are certain relationships with the cannery that could lead to that, but that is not actually the situation of you know most of these fishermen historically. And so in so that, and even if they weren't dealing with sort of a few powerful canneries or whatever, but the mm-hmm. but the canneries are the are the buyers mm-hmm. here. Anyway, then don't, don't mean to get in, we'll come back to the fishers hopefully when we talk about that. But the my point is that the, I contend that certainly under 19th century common law horizontal coordination among smallholders was fine it was not a problem right actually coordination among journeymen which was the main type of workers who constituted the defendants in the labor common law labor conspiracy cases that were kind of a predicate for those early antitrust labor coordination cases that i mentioned coordination among journeymen was censored by common you know 19th century common law courts more than coordination among smallholders was. But even then, okay, so I'm just gonna say my spiel about this. Even then, it was a completely separate line of law. Like you don't have courts citing price fixing precedent, you know, like sort of among these merchants you know whatever in the labor cases or really vice versa like there's a couple of places well, where you're,
0: you're I, I, let me just say you're giving yeah. us your the basis for your objection to the standard interpretation of section one of the sherman act
2: well no i'm not uh, i'm actually uh, just telling you like the fact of how the, this law developed which is that i mean i'm not even I, i'm not sure. doubting
0: you i i've already been oh. convinced i'm just saying i want what i want you to tell us is you know, other people, not you, think yeah, that- Yeah, sex- what
2: these other people, these judges did. Because, yeah. the, okay, maybe I was just giving you too much background, but all right, fine. So like it's two separate lines. Of, I think I was just trying to make the clarification yeah. that the price, that sort of price fixing, quote, price fixing or, you know, output restrictions or whatever among mm-hmm. small holders beyond firm boundaries was just historically not the same line of cases as the- as the labor coordination cases it what that was not true in the common law pre sherman act and it was not true post sherman act when and this is let me just wrap this up real quick with a bow and then we'll get to your actual question like in the you know you're familiar with like the, in the 1890s how the the supreme court and the federal courts in general sort of like declined to prosecute you know declined to stop the e c night merger right or to stop the sugar trust merger um but they did uh, allow prosecutions of price fixing amongst, among, you know, probably more medium-sized businesses to proceed, and that that's supposed to be one of the sort of causal inputs to the great merger movement, which is this extremely important thing, you know, a sort of business and economic development that happens in the 1890s in the early uh, 20th century, right? So That occurred, and I think that was also a perversion of legislative intent, but it is a separate line of cases, actually, from sort of the, from the labor coordination cases, from the railroad strike, from the um, Louisiana port strike, from eventually Danbury Hatters, right, and we, I guess we can come back to that and why I think that's important, but that is a fact, and So in terms of the understanding of the, I mean, I would say that they didn't talk about legislative history that much though. I mean, it's true that the Supreme Court in Danbury Hatters sort of said um, in passing, well, you know, they they effectively said, like, that Congress had a chance to pass a labor exemption, and it didn't. That it, you know, that it sort of considered a labor exemption, and it did not pass a labor exemption, and that, you know, therefore... um, But you're saying they
0: didn't need to. Their view would have been that that's ridiculous to even suggest that that was necessary. So where does that idea come from, that that the course of action that Danbury Hatter's concern was even remotely implicated in the Sherman Act?
2: Yeah, so I think that's actually a deep question that we have to pull on a couple of strands to answer. So I think that th- I think that there's a few things happening. I think that in 1889 1890 when the Sherman Act is being discussed first of all there isn't it's very important that there isn't this conventional condemnation of quote price fixing i.e. horizontal price coordination beyond firm boundaries like that does not exist at common law. So Legislators just aren't informed by that, right? Like by that by that understanding as a legal background matter. Furthermore, you know, while that might be, I mean, I actually think, I mean, you can weigh in here, Marshall, but I actually think classical economics was, you know, arguably more Catholic about this than neoclassical economics anyway, because there was a way in which classical economics was kind of went hand in hand with, or could go hand in hand or different strains with sort of legal laissez-faire, which would actually permit price fixing because it's mm-hmm. freedom of contract, right? Um, and there were certainly classical economists who were, who were sympathetic to that type of philosophy, right? So it was at least more, you know, not univocal about that, you know, and so I think partly we read back this idea that under, because under sort of like our background basic, like under background understanding of neoclassical law and economics, of course, in sort of just ordinary price theory, you don't want coordination among sellers, like that makes no sense. That's obviously a distortion of the market, right? So we, we read that back, but that wasn't their, what wasn't their sort of background understanding. And moreover, they weren't even taking classical political economy as their I would argue, as their primary background interpretive principle, because what they were taking was this popular movement of farmers and workers. So it's really this farmer labor coalition that is the anti, you know, is 19th century anti-monopoly, basically. I mean, there's also small merchants and there's others, of course, but that's the core that's, that historians generally agree is the political uh, heart of, you know, the push for the, what sure. became the Sherman Act. I'm not saying that legislators adopted the, you know, sort of all the radical demands of that coalition, but I'm saying they do take that as sort of their background principle, or uh, you know, you know. And I argue that that farmer labor movement and the way they articulate their political demands and the best way to understand their political demands is not in the context even of classical economics or classical political economy, but this idea of moral economy um, in which, so we won't go into a whole segue about that, but their, you know, their ethos was, you know, at one point the founder of the Grange, which was kind of one of these first farmers organizations uh, that is, you know, at the core of farmer labor and a monopoly, said, you know, something like, you know, cooperation and down with monopolies are proving to be popular watchwords because they had such an increase in, you know, exponential increase in membership in their early years. And so they are describing their goals as this twofold cultivating cooperation among farmers and workers and small players of the land basically and down with monopolies like deconcentrating you know the economic power in that way and that they those two things because there isn't this idea of a natural economic order governed by sort of faceless competition there's no contradiction between those two ideas for the anti-monopoly movement.
0: Yeah, and 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 so I I just want to sort of bring out exactly the the contrast that Centricto uh, is is drawing here. That you know we have this retrospective take on the Sherman Act as encoding classical or I should say neoclassical economic theory that it, it seeks to protect a competitive market and uh, small participants in the economy working together to. Either I guess set prices or uh, uh, determine output through uh, withholding labor or supplying it. That those are distortions to the competitive market. Whereas what you're saying is that the moral economy background of the Sherman Act says that those things are actually in themselves a check on monopoly power. So exactly. Uh, yeah. So that so the moral economy background of the Sherman Act would say rather section one is supposed to encourage those things, not or I should say the whole act is is supposed to encourage those things rather than, uh, than prohibit them. And that exactly. like, the, the complete inverse of of what was the intent ended up being the jurisprudence.
2: Exactly, and the legislators, and we don't have to just sort of rely on this pre-enactment historical reconstruction, although I think it's very informative, but also like legislators affirmed that when they were talking, right? Like the, so mm-hmm. they, they did discuss this because I don't deny that, you know, they're not quite like judges, but, some of these people went to uh you know Yale and Harvard and <laughs> these places where classical economics is being taught. And um it, interestingly, I mean, whatever, this isn't my this is just speculating, but I guess I guess I get to do that on a podcast, right? Like it's, it's interesting because it's like the judges who were much more exclusively from that type of background social milieu, then took it in the direction that they did. And the legislators, you know, still elites, but more um. I think it's a more democratic was a more democratic makeup at that point in time than the federal judiciary was, um, and I I just think they saw saw themselves as a bit closer to this moral economy of. the- well, we we
0: could have a very interesting debate now about whether the federal judiciary or the United States Senate is a more democratic body. Um, yeah. But I think I, well, I, think, I was not-
3: I was just going to interject to say that like you know you can think of that with the modern day equivalent of like federal judges are people who went to Yale Law School almost uniformly <laughs> at least on the east coast. Uh and uh um representatives are people who own ski doo dealerships. I mean, you know, like they have they have a version of the same politics generally speaking if they're, you know, a, you know, a liberal or a republican or what, whatever, but I mean, right, right. you know, like they're they're they they're daily I mean, federal judges never interact with real people ever. Uh I was I was told, <laughs> I I'm a lawyer as well. I was told a story about a federal judge in Minneapolis who Uh, you know, his, his daily life was, he would, you know, drive from, uh, his, the Tony suburb he lived in, uh, go into the underground parking garage, take the elevator up, interact with his clerks and his staff, take the elevator down, drive back out to the suburbs. And, you know, like the, the amount of time that he, you know, the people he interacted with in the city was like the dry cleaner in the Skyway. That's it. Right. This in is Minneapolis. So right? we have skyways. It's instead of the street yeah, level because yeah, it's yeah, cold. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. he really didn't even like probably go outside all that much like in you know downtown Minneapolis. We have a beautiful <laughs> federal courthouse in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, that's you know, it, it's a total there is a total difference between I mean, like the people who they're they're both freaks, but in a totally different way. You know, you, you got the kind of freak who, you know, has studied their whole life to, you know, to be on an elite education level and. Be on that track, and you know, to single-mindedly like pursue. You really, you know, in a lot of ways, if you want to be a federal judge, it's like a single-minded pursuit at this point. You know, it's not people who don't I have like
2: even more so now. I mean, although yeah. it was probably that way in the 1890s as well. But I will, I will just say, um, I, you know, I I did a federal clerkship, and I I loved my federal clerkship. But at my judge was, um, you know, so he was a little bit of a holdover. He was a Nixon appointee. I don't know if I've ever told you this.
0: I actually didn't know that you had done a clerkship at all, let alone who your oh, judge was. Yeah, so. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he um, was at, was a Nixon appointee. He went to the University of Oregon Law School, um, and was but was on the Ninth Circuit. He uh, um, was an actual cowboy. Like he really like went and still did this like thing of I don't know. Moving the cows. <laughs> moving cows from winter to summer pasture. Yes,
0: people do actually do that. <laughs> I, I want to now get into more of the uh, nitty gritty of your own scholarship, syndicate. um, There's a couple of important concepts that I discern as as uh, uh, pioneered by you, and I would like you to explain those to us. Uh, coordination rights, uh, so what does that mean? Antitrust firm exemption, what does that mean? I guess that you've spoken already about the labor exemption, so you can take off from there. Um, And then finally, this idea that firm boundaries might be inconsistently drawn between antitrust and other areas of law. You
2: you expect me to explain
0: all this? Well, yeah, I mean, this is is the core of things. Yeah. (laughs) I'm
2: just kidding. So I think the the point of talking about coordination, right? So I guess I should define it and then say what the point is, but they're kind of related. So economic coordination happens in all sorts of ways. It happens within sort of conventionally recognized enterprise boundaries. It happens in public bodies. It happens um, across sort of traditional enterprise boundaries frequently, even, you know, despite, despite sort of sort of what the de jure prohibitions are, it still does occur in various ways. Um, And sort of the idea of coordination rights is meant to capture both the ubiquity of economic coordination, which there's answers to this, but which as a first look matter is not emphasized by our neoclassical line economics framework that sort of provides, you know, not just in a way I think it's worse, like i actually think it's worse among lawyers than economists because lawyers learn this sort of like 101 background sense of this you know and i feel like it's it's in various ways it's imparted to us in law school and i think that's actually worse than some you know than, than, than um than, than someone who really has to actually study this in some depth even if mostly what they're Studying is like the models and then doing math
3: and yeah. I, I was just gonna interrupt to say I think that the most dangerous person or the most dangerous frame of mind a person can be in is when they just finish like the in, introduction to economics course. Because then they just start looking at everything as like this economic, this like very like just so story of economics reasoning, where they're like, ah, well, of course, the world is exactly the way it should be, you know.
0: Yeah, and and Bork himself to uh, you know, bring in the boogeyman. Uh, referred to that sort of situation as being basically a religious conversion that he saw the world completely differently after encountering an introductory economics course, and that changed everything. You know, which is, I think, as is uh, referring to, not the way that actual economists would view the the discipline. It's not a religious conversion; it's a social science. Anyway, then, I mean, so there's get, no role for
2: conversion of that. You get a version of that, arguably, after your one L year, depending depending sort of on who teaches your classes and, but, you know, you arguably, you know, download some sort of version of that common sense in law school, um, which arguably is more dangerous, I think, even, I don't know, I don't want to, no point in making comparisons, it's all bad, right? But um, you arguably sort of absorb this common sense and it, it varies. I mean, on the other hand, I think that there's there are just other perspectives in law schools that you know you can seek out, and that incre- And this is increasingly true, but it's always been true to some degree. So I think that's the countervailing consideration in terms of which one is worse. But regardless, um, the point is that there's this, it's really, there's like, I don't think the theory makes sense for various reasons that we can talk about. But also, I think that there's also just this kind of more inchoate background common sense that informs legal reasoning that like really doesn't make sense, right? And And that background common sense sort of um, essentializes certain forms of economic coordination, particularly the firm, the business firm, which is a locus of economic coordination. One thing Ronald Coase did is that he recognized that, right, um, and and actually named that. But it is, you know, it certainly is a locus of economic coordination. Uh, Those same functional things could be done in some other way you know that we can talk about sort of what the essential features of a firm are uh, or are not but the point is that that there are you know in this background common sense that i think is sort of supported by some combination and at the interstices of law and economics we tend to erase and essentialize certain forms of economic coordination while sort of viewing other forms of economic coordination as deviant and i don't think that this is yet like we don't even have to have a political motivation yet to do that like i think that the the common sense just already sort of sets us up to do that and i don't even Common sense was necessarily set up for sort of, you know, out of some conspiracy theory or something. Like, it, I think it is related to political development and, you know, um, in, in various ways, but I think that it came to be. And it's not just the firm, but maybe we should come back to that with the Chicago School. But the firm, I think, is the basis for then these, these the, 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 you know, what you said, the inconsistent drawing of firm boundaries that occurs in the more, in the contemporary economy. In any case, um, the point of talking about coordination rights, I think, is to highlight the ubiquity of economic coordination and the essential role of law in choosing among forms of economic coordination. That the law is always allocating economic coordination rights, deciding who can set prices because price setting is not just being done by individual producers in some Smithian utopia. That's the only way you can get rid of it, right? Is if you assume individual producers. That's not the case. So, I mean, we can talk about this even if, even in the context of complex production, I think that there's price setting going on. Also, complex production isn't a lot of what's happening in the economy anyway, but there's price set, but in both senses, it's occurring. Uh, even if there's also operational integration, I would argue there is still price coordination happening. There's still price setting happening when you, you know, so when you just to go into that for a second. So if you, when you go from sort of actually a level of technological development where maybe you did have individual producers and there was less um, labor specialization, a thing that Adam Smith focused on a lot, right? Like when there was less labor specialization than Maybe there were more sort of artisans making the entire boot from scratch or whatever. And as technology develops there's you know obviously more complex production and I think that yes to some extent like that's a non-ideological reason for our blindness to the farm exemption arguably that it's just harder to see when it's like the GM plant or right like when you have division of labor in, in you know across this technological process um but that's not the whole story in in many ways uh for for because I think that there's price coordination where there isn't that type of operational coordination. And and the um type of economic, you know, of just of price coordination, just price and output, you know, that those core antitrust concerns, just coordination across those dimensions. There's so much more that GM is doing at, for example, just to kind of because we talk about the Fordist firm is right. Um they're, they are um, exerting influence into their input markets in various ways. So historically, that's what these complex firms did when they became powerful. They, they, you know, they exerted power in adjacent markets in various ways. They're certainly exerting power across plants. So everything I'm talking about, like specialization, I mean, there could be some products that are passed from plant to plant, but, but there's, GM and Ford are doing economic coordination beyond the plant level. The most that sort of division of labor gets you is plant level anyway. Clearly, the firm exemption isn't the plant exemption. The firm exemption is way beyond that. And actually, this is something that that has, I think, been written about to some extent in a different context, not in the context of exactly the firm exemption, but just like sort of plant level efficiencies and, versus multi-plant efficiencies and it's mm-hmm. I think this is a real problem that when we that when the farm exemption then gets uploaded and like magnified in the Chicago school revolution we take sort of at uh, some level like efficiencies that would only exist on the plant level and we generalize them way beyond that I know that's not all yeah. that's going no, on No, no I think we,
0: that's a totally fair comment I mean from a <laughs> perspective of Economic theory seldom is a distinction drawn between uh, economically, like the unit that operates a production function, which is basically the analog to a plant, and the firm that <laughs> may extend across lands. You know, those things are are considered the same thing. And the essence of them is that they have a production function to operate, not that they're you know, coordinating along uh, across uh, uh, units of production.
1: I wanted to know too that. One thing that occurred to me in this, uh, and I don't want to detract from, you know, Sinjukta's main point here, but that the power that you wield in these arrangements is uh, very much, you know, you know, you can wield a lot of power that falls outside of, you know, what you might think of as the traditional remit of the particular company, simply by occupying like a particularly central location in the network where all of these things intersect, right? so it doesn't it's not that it's not simply that you you know you have the most money and therefore you can like boss people around it's that you actually occupy a very central location like in the in the production and distribution network and everybody who has to participate in that network like really depends on you. So even if like combined they could somehow like, you know, overpower you quote unquote or whatever. That's very hard for them to do because they're, you know, they have a coordination problem. You don't have a coordination problem and you occupy the central node in the network.
2: Yeah, clearly there's other yeah, I mean clearly there's there's sort of other factors here besides just sort of the size of the firm. Um I agree, but how did, how did we get on this topic Marshall, oh, you actually <laughs> define, define coordination rights and I feel like yeah. I sort of did that to so the point. Board- yeah,
0: yeah no I think you did. I oh. I, 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 no. so I was gonna, I, I, uh, you did tee up basically my next question which is. That you you referred to the Chicago School of antitrust as reifying the firm exemption and yeah. kind of bringing it to this high level by conceiving the firm exemption as associated with um, uh, economic production and particularly efficiency in economic production. Um, but I wanted to step back a little bit in terms of the kind con- con- intellectual and policy history of antitrust. You know, the conventional wisdom in that realm is definitely that there's like. The pre-Chicago and post-Chicago period, and you know, depending on your ideological uh, uh, take on on the antitrust, you either sort of—I mean, I would say like uphold that delineation, and then just ally yourself with like either good or bad associated with one either one of those two periods. So we've got you know the Chicago people and their own partisans will say you know, antitrust was pre-economic prior to the advent of the Chicago School in which economics was introduced to antitrust and then it was good. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding that seemingly contradictorily we'll say the Sherman Act legislated a version of perfect competition from our models of economics. So leave that, leave leaving aside that inconsistency, you've got that sort of one very teleological historical take. And on the other hand, you could say, you know, antitrust was whatever it was or like you know, true antitrust up until the Chicago school and at which point it was taken over by economics and perverted away from its real function, which was to create democracy. So one thing I think that's uh, groundbreaking in your scholarship is, you know, not accepting that pre and post Chicago divide as being so uh, decisive and that, you know, many of the things that that are associated with the Chicago school, in fact, like for example, the firm exemption are, um, Uh, uh, You know, stem from earlier and and, uh, uh, a different, both intellectual and economic uh, 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 background that gave rise to them. So, tell us why. Why is your? You know, uh, uh, what would be your critique of the idea that the Chicago School is this decisive break in the history of antitrust?
2: So I I don't think I disagree that it's a device, the decisive break, Um, but it's not. um, But but no, I obviously agree with everything you just said. Also, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, and so I guess I'll try to restate it with a little more detail, maybe, and then you Mm -hmm. can just cut me off. Mm -hmm. um, So I feel like you know I I I retranslate this. For myself in my mind so it's probably not like a very accurate quote of the antitrust paradox but Robert Bork basically you know when he's arguing for you know he's argues for various bad things but he argues for you know permissive murder policy basically you know um and when he's doing that in his book and probably in papers before his book he sort of says he doesn't use these words but i've already like translated it in my mind as saying this um he basically says look we already had a firm exemption before right we already thought that like antitrust law before my intervention already treated firms and cartels differently so we already recognized the greater efficiency producing benefits of firms over cartels. And then he glosses that in a more confusing and less straightforward way, but that's basically what he's saying. So he's saying like, when I say that, um, you know, we should prefer, you know, we should, uh, you know that mergers often that the efficiency you know the operational efficiency that mergers bring often outweigh sort of you know the output reduction in allocative efficiency terms that the merger is going to bring i when i say that i'm actually I mean, i'm actually drawing on certain things that are already in our conventional understanding of antitrust law and effectively that is the firm exemption. You know, because it the um, and so he's not wrong when he says that. Of course, it's not dictated by what came before, because in in various ways, what came before said said that okay, yeah, there's operational efficiencies to the firm. We're gonna confine that though in various ways. We're gonna put. So I think maybe I'll just say a little bit more about how I see mid century antitrust law in Chicago. So so I mean, I so as you kind of said, I think mid century antitrust law already contains the firm exemption. Also, I feel like I have to say at some point whenever I'm talking about this, I'm not against firms. I'm not saying, I'm not actually saying we should like literally abolish the firm exemption and prosecute um, GM for price fixing. I mean, maybe we should, I don't know, but that's not really what I'm saying, you know? Um, I'm, I'm saying that we should recognize the, you know, certain forms of economic coordination that are occurring within firm boundaries that we just truly have a difficult time seeing. Like I've been talking about this for a few years now and I get the sense in some conversations I have with very smart people that it is actually very difficult to see, you know, at at a fundamental level. You can like maybe get it like eight tenths of the way, but it, it is hard for some people to just fully see the economic equivalence of certain forms of coordination and the logical distinction between saying that the operational integration that occurs in the Fordist firm is like beneficial to society in some way, fine, maybe it is, maybe, you know, like I'm not, that's not what I'm contesting actually, but but that that is logically distinct from the price coordination that also occurs. And P.S. most firms aren't Fordist firms and don't have that level of operational integration at all. And you know which firm really exemplifies that for us? The firm that caused us to um, first meet Marshall (laughs) Hoover. (laughs) Which is exactly
0: where I was going. Yes, ride
2: share, right, so tell us about it. this is what the gig economy does is that it makes, you know, it both, you know, yes, it's inconsistent drawing of firm boundaries, it both stretches the firm exemption, but it also makes the firm exemption very vivid for us in a way that it might not be and it actually might not have been in the mid-century settlement. So to historicize it just a tiny bit, I don't think we can cover all of this, but I think that the I think that the sort of mid-century settlement of of economic coordination, you know, by the close of the New Deal anoints the business firm as the basic engine of economic coordination in the economy, you know, and fine, not saying that's good or bad, but it is what happened. And there were other, there are other possibilities. I mean, even Nira, for all the problems that it had is in a way an experiment with something else because to the extent- Sorry,
0: say what that is. Uh Uh, The (laughs) National
2: Industrial Recovery Act any mode of market governance that takes pricing decisions out of the individual firm level is automatically undermining the you know what i call the firm exemption um right because i mean that that's sort of like a key element of it um and and is giving you know whoever it's giving giving input into that the you know the state uh potentially organized labor right i mean this is fundamentally like an undoing, a partial undoing of the firm exemption. Maybe you're all still making operational. And it's important to like consider that as an alternative. That if operational integration is so great, like, yeah, maybe we should still allow that for production purposes and we should encourage that in various ways, but that it doesn't fall. I mean, decoupling. So, in a way, I haven't said it this way actually in writing, so it's useful to talk it through this way. Decoupling. Production and operational integration from pricing coordination is one of the points of this analytical move that I'm trying to make, right? Yep. And, and, yeah. I, and I mean, and that that,
0: that that implicates rideshare directly. So I want to get. It seems like the exact opposite of what you're saying uh, <laughs> uh, in the case of the um, the traditional business firm because it, it it's making pricing decisions, but production is not uh, centralized exactly. under one roof and you know not it's not just that, but also that legally speaking the boundary of the firm is drawn to exclude the production from the price setting.
2: exactly. and what's what's funny about that is in many conventional settings, when workers do that, when smallholders do that, we, we're immediately we're like, hey 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 no, cuz there's no operational integration is literally an element of the legal test for mm-hmm. single entity status you know which mm-hmm. like the um and um i think that actually is a problem for uber um uh, in fact uh but it it is interesting that it took that i i think that there is this sort of again we'll come back to the background common sense because i think there's the legal rules and then there's this kind of like background common sense that falls within the realm of law. Like it's almost like this legal subconscious or legal common sense or something that informs how legal actors view these things. So I agree that, you know, so there's these kind of stories we can tell about like all these regulators and the FTC and all these people were like in the pockets of Uber. And I don't know, you know, but I, I think many of them were. And, but I think there's, but I think part of what encouraged them though, was also this background common sense. It's not just like taking money from Uber or being, you know, it's not just that. Like it's, there's this powerful, you know, there's something where, I mean, we should ask why? Why was Uber able to, you know, when literally the black letter legal test for single entity status says that, you know, a pricing agency without operational integration, like that's not enough. We're gonna see that in, um. Steve Salop's post for, for, for the LPE symposium that we're doing in where he's analyzing, you know, what, what if Uber drivers formed a joint venture, right? So he analyzes that test. That's the test under joint ventures and that's the test under sort of just the st- sort of straight single entity status as well. Um, so it's worth asking, what is it about Uber that kind of like led people down this garden path? And I think that part of it is financial centralization. So the fact that we have, you know, this like VC backed, you you know, it, it just looks like a firm in terms of financial centralization that looks like a firm to us. And I think that it is that as much as the, you know, mystique of Uber and whatever money was flowing and whatever else that led regulators down this garden path,
0: honestly. So I, I just want to make clear exactly what the garden path is being referred to or what Salop is saying in this yet-to-be-published uh, post. Oh. The, 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 okay. So the point is uh, Uber sets prices for all of the different drivers that are affiliated with Uber despite the fact that the drivers are not legally part of the firm because they disclaim employment status. And you're saying, you know, if they were to avail themselves of the firm exemption, the black letter law says that they would have to show that the, uh, company Uber is integrated production, not just pricing. And there's no sense in which the company is actually integrated production. It's the drivers who are doing the driving. The firm has not really changed that. in uh, any
1: Can I, can I just interject as like a, uh, specialist in a different area um i mean there is a sense in which uber has integrated production and that is specifically related to their software engineering efforts like that is the you know in insofar as you can say that uber makes anything they make software that's that's it like so that's that's you
0: sound like one of their lawyers in an.
1: no 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 i I i'm just i'm i'm merely like interjecting you know something that is of professional interest to me but i just want to say that like Insofar as you can consider Uber to be anything, like Uber is a company that builds a certain kind of software, and that is what their production actually is. Like, that's what they produce. Anyway, moving on.
0: Well, we don't have to move on. I mean, I think that gets exactly to the heart of this is whether that, con- that, that counts as economic production to the extent that they benefit from the firm exemption and can set prices unilaterally for all of these different legally well, independent, uh, <laughs> uh, agents.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I, am I'm, I'm just a, you know, a, a regular, uh, you know, country software engineer, but so, so I don't know, I don't know whether, what, what the answer to that question is. Um, Uh, But, you know, obviously, I think it would be uh, quite different if Uber were, uh, you know, let's say selling their software or something like that in the the same sense that like Microsoft sells their software, right? Well, their
0: claim is that that's exactly what they're doing, that they're licensing software to the drive. I mean, I should say they have inconsistent claims. When we talk about employment classification, which which is, uh, you know, them saying that, no, 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 we're not involved in economic production, what they'll say is that, sure, we develop some software the people who develop that software are our employees. We license that software to drivers that enables them to meet customers, but that is not part of the economic production of rideshare, the drivers provide that. So in, I, I just want to, this, this again, key phrase being inconsistent drawing of firm boundaries. That's what Sendrick is talking about that For the purposes of are these people all these drivers your employees, the answer is no, because we are not involved in economic production, all we did was program software and you're saying. Wait 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 or Uber's saying on the antitrust side. yeah we are involved in economic production, we would need to set prices in order to make that production more efficient or something like that, and there you conceive the software programming as being constitutive of the production of the ride share services.
3: I was just going to say, I think that the, the, the fact that Uber can kind of have it both ways by threading the needle to one side and then the other makes it such a perfect illustration of this tendency of basically these all these regulations operate as like a one-way ratchet in favor of people who have a lot of money, I guess, yes. would be yes. the, I, the simplest yeah. way of putting well, it. Well, uh, stay, so, stay
0: tuned for my uh, contribution to the symposium. That just. Well, I was just going to say
3: like, you know... Um, we've been talking about before how you know uh when for instance like the city of los angeles wants to step in and say the you know in order to avail yourselves of our port services you have to use certain kinds of trucking facilities that have certain labor protections or certain you know whatever that of course is you know unlawful uh coordination uh you know, there's when uh, when, uh, you know, workers go on a wildcat strike as truckers, then, you know, that's it, it, it's the Sherman Act is turned around against them. And that that is also unlawful um, coordination. But Uber has this this amazing thing where it it, it is able to say not only, uh, you know, look, we don't we have uh, no employees. Our drivers are not employees. You know, the only employees we have are executives and software engineers or whatever um uh but at the same time we still have the legal right to coordinate and set the prices that those uh you know contractors pay so not you know we get to have it both ways and this it, you know it seems to me that this is sort of the first or the maybe just the biggest example of like really like one story that has it shows that it, it goes it, you know that the that these regulations never apply in the way that would harm the company that has $200 billion in venture capital money or whatever. I mean, when Marshall, when you said before, or Jerry, when you said before, like, you know, uh, I, well, I don't know if that makes it, you know, lawful under uh, what Uber's doing lawful under, uh, you know, antitrust law. I'm just a humble lawyer, whatever. Uh, the question of whether it's lawful under, under antitrust law seems to me to be a question of do you have $200 billion in venture capital money? If you do, perfect. Well, we'll find a way to accommodate every little, you know, nook and cranny of the law that could possibly be used against you is going to be, uh, you know, bent over in a way that um, that makes it not apply to harm your business model. Uh, but then, of course, you know, if you're the city, if you're the the Port Authority of Los Angeles, or if you're a bunch of wildcat striking workers, then, you know, these things will be turned in the exact opposite fashion against you, you know, in favor of the central coordinate, you know, the, the firm that's exact, that's, that's uh, exercising its coordination rights or, you know, however you want to put it.
2: You know, somebody may have already said this, but if it, I I don't disagree that Uber has operational coordination at the level of the app. I was actually about to say that when Marshall said whatever he says, but um, but then that would imply that they should have price, co- I mean, if price coordination rights are supposed to correspond to operational coordination, uh, operational uh, uh, integration, then, you know, which is like the best reading of sort of of this justification, then it should be able to set prices for the software, right? Like that's what that would imply.
3: The thing that strikes me is it's like, so, you know, uh, the political economy of this country sort of uh, requires this in some way, like it recruits these ideas to it and they become very well adapted to survival and like the, you know, sort of left to its own devices form of our economy, which is like, you know, uh, when you talk about operational integration, And uh, the ability to set prices, it makes perfect sense in like a Fordist model of the firm where you have, you know, like uh, a car company that, that makes cars and it has a bunch of workers who make cars. The quintessential, those were the quintessential companies up into the mid seventies of, of the, the American economy. Uh, after that, the quintessential companies of the American economy are like Walmart, which, you know, doesn't actually make many things. It contracts with people and it has suppliers. And so, you know, it does employ people to sell things in a store or now on a website or whatever, but in some ways it's a lot like Uber in that it has all these different nodes that it's interacting with and it, it has the ability to coordinate very well, uh, like the amount of things that it buys from them, the prices that it will pay for those things, there's a book about this by Lee Phillips called, uh, People's Republic of Walmart, it's very interesting, that basically argues this is a model for like a socialist planned economy, essentially. But you know, you know, it's still involved with tangible goods, I guess. Uh, Uber represents like a similar kind of structure in some ways, but like completely abstracted away from like a tangible good. Uh, Exactly.
2: So, I mean, I think that this is just like uh, pick up on that for a second. Like, Sure. I think that you can kind of take this, you know, notice this about Uber and you can take it in two directions. You can either take it in the direction of sort of the gig economy is a travesty and we need to put it back in its box, which, I do agree with as a pragmatic uh, strategy on the ground, and you know, um, in terms of arguing for employee status and you know, and other strategies. But conceptually and sort of politically and normatively, you can also view it as it as in fact Uber's not that different from as you said Walmart. From you know, it's certainly not. I agree with that point completely. It's certainly not that different from a million other firms that may not be technology platforms, but that engage service providers on an independent contractor, on an independent contractor basis, or like frankly, on it like, I don't really care if that person has two people in their firm or whatever, like for this price coordination. You know, it refocuses so much of, you know, I just to bring it full circle to the personal background thing that Marshall asked, like when I was getting into this, I feel like I had to resist a lot, like in fact this was like the, one of the first comments I got from you know was it sort of why don't you just write about misclassification why don't you just sort of make this about labor and employment law like that's what's going on here and I I didn't even see the whole p- picture yet at that point but I was like no I don't like yes I support that pragmatically but that is like there's a string to pull on here that's bigger than that and that string is when you change the emphasis from is this a worker which I, I, for various reasons, don't think this is, you know, we, we, I feel like we should at least talk about that before we end, Marshall. For at, at any rate, for this purpose, like when you change emphasis from that to the price coordination rights of the more, of initially, you know, in, in your analysis, you change focus from like, is the dominated party a worker to is the more dominant party, you know, what what are the rights, what are the price coordination rights they're enjoying? I think that just changes sort of where you go, right? And it becomes, right? You know, I mean, and, and so then, like you said, Walmart is exercising price coordination rights in this way. Certainly, so are a million other firms that engage Either small subcontractors or service providers on an individual basis, and then set prices. So, in other words, even a trucking firm—just to stick with that example—that is that has independent contractor truck drivers and is set even before all the other stuff. Even if they were being kind of nice to them, they're still setting prices across that group of truck drivers. There's no operational integration really at all with a trucking company either, frankly, a port trucking company anyway. And economically, that. Economic coordination—that price coordination—is equivalent to a quote cartel of 20 truck drivers, as it is to a 20-employee truck truck um, trucking firm. Right? That is a milder example because the reason it's a milder example is because—and I feel like I should say this—is that in sort of mid-century, not just mid-century antitrust law, but the mid-century sort of like settlement on economic coordination more broadly. One thing that confining price coordination and, you know, sort of similar robust forms of economic coordination to firm boundaries did, which is something that mid-century antitrust law did, right? One thing that that entails is that you're confining that price coordination exerted by the firm control group to a unit where the counterparties or the or the you know the, the parties whose economic activity you're exercising that price coordinate you know those price coordination rights over those parties have coordination rights of their own in mid, in the mid-century settlement those coordination rights came from labor law and as much as labor law was already in a decline by like 1950, it still functionally provided coordination rights to many, many more people, and you right. I mean, so that is a big con, a big difference between sort of the employee-based trucking firm. And either the independent contractor trucking firm or Uber, that doesn't have anything to do with operational integration, but it does have to do with this sort of broader parity that the mid century settlement on economic coordination did impose. And that, as you will see in uh, Marshall's contribution to this symposium that's coming up, that the um, non enforcement of vertical restraints law, which was Robustly enforced in under mid-century antitrust law is, is one way we didn't really talk about that when we were talking about Uber, but it's one way in which domination and certainly price coordination that's occurring in a more hierarchical way across as opposed to a horizontal sort of, you know, relatively equal status way um occurs and is allowed to occur and that is how we get this inconsistent drawing of firm boundaries that we're talking about one one key mechanism for how we get it
3: so if you don't mind i have two somewhat cynical follow up questions uh i, I uh, so in the example of the um the 20 uh drivers who could be said to be similar to a price fixing cartel or a price setting cartel whatever you want to call it you know Fixing, I guess, puts a little bit of a you know <laughs> negative gloss on it, but you know you you could you can make a, a good argument that you know these things are are functionally equivalent, and then you with that argument you could argue for you know various conclusions that one should draw from that, such as well you know maybe the these wildcat strikes shouldn't be regulated under the Sherman Act, or maybe you could use it you could say that this means that actually firms are much more susceptible and should be regulated more under the Sherman Act. There's various ways you could take it. And I understand that you're an academic and your you know your job is to sort of look for uh what you think are uh you know conceptually uh correct ways of interpreting statutory language and legal principles and, and stuff like that my, my cynical question is it doesn't look it doesn't seem like the people in this field are are interested in correct answers it seems like they're interested in doing what they're doing and ju- finding a way to justify it through whatever the text of the law is so what difference does it make on a political level? I mean, obviously on an academic level, it makes contribution to scholarship is valuable in an abstract sense. But, but you know, in, in the real world, what does having a right answer to what the statute really means, does that do anything in your opinion?
2: Ah, oh, We're getting into really the deep meta questions here. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to say something similar to what I said to the people six years ago who were like, just do the labor and employment law thing. Why are you going into this crazy anti stuff? And, you know, which is that I, I haven't, like, we haven't seen it cash out yet, but I am operating on faith that it does matter. You know, maybe it doesn't. And this will all just be really pointless, but I I think it matters, you know? Like, I think we all have different roles. I was a practicing lawyer for many years. I don't know. I think I think maybe that's what motivates me actually to care about this. Um, in a in in a way that's, that that I I resist sometimes um the that type of intervention um from colleagues that I know you didn't um frame it this way but sometimes it comes from a perspective of well this is all this is all determined by interest groups you know this is all uh you know the the legal categories don't mind any matter anyway why are you why bother to trying to, try to get it right and we You get this from different quarters. I mean, you sometimes get it from Marxist or quasi-Marxist quarters that are like, you know, obviously the law is just going to be used by the people who are powerful. And I mean, it's not, I don't think it's just from Marxist that you get this and I'm not definitely not all Marxists. I hope that people don't hate me when they look into <laughs> this, but it, I did just definitely like reflecting on the conversations I tend to have on a day-to-day basis. And it, the thing is, I think you can, I, I I mean, I'll just tell you my gloss on it. I, there's a part of this that's faith that I can't give a rational explanation where I could just be wrong. I could just be making the wrong bet here, you know? But I, I guess I have a feeling, a gut feeling that is based on observation to some extent, that it is not just that, that that there is, I mean, so when I look back and I, I have these conversations, when I look at the history, like, that there is a common sense that shapes people's outlooks, that's not actually just reducible to who has more power right now, it contributes to and constitutes and often reaffirms who has more power right now, but I don't think it's reducible to that. So I guess I do believe that, right? Like, and I don't think it's all just who's getting money, and yeah, that influences it, but it's, but it's, um, and it's important to call it out, but I don't think that's all of it. And so I I, I do think that it's important, I guess I just, i or at least I'm making a bet that it is important to like deconstruct this common sense, and that you're not going to, like, there are dyed in the wool people who really are uh, in the pockets or who are, you know, whatever, that you're not going to convince them. But it's a question of like, but but how many new people who first of all haven't been influenced by the ideology, right? Um, and or people who aren't completely in the pockets of whatever the powers that be are, are you maybe going to convince? And I guess I do believe that that's possible. We were talking about legal pedagogy at the beginning of this. Like there's a common sense you absorb as a law student. I don't think you have to mm-hmm. be trying to brainwash anyone mm-hmm. to just bring a different perspective on things and um and on the categories. And then secondly, I just would say that. I do think people who have power reproduce power. That's undeniable. I guess there's a slightly different way of looking at it where I think that there is a natural tendency for those who ha, you know, enjoy outsized coordination rights at the moment to reproduce those coordination rights, including under law. I mean, I think you see that happening in a dramatic way when you look back in history at certain moments of great like ferment, like the like the turn of the century being one of them, where you have so many contempt, you know, the Sherman Act was passed. You have the great merger movement happening. You have the New Jersey corporate revolution, Marshall's home state, you know, our first Delaware. Very important. Is that, is that your version
0: of me bringing up that you went to Yale Law School? <laughs>
2: <laughs> this I somehow a version of that, but I feel like I could bring up other, more specific things in that vein that
0: I Oh, thinking. ouch.
2: But anyway, um, but so, but so the you know the New Jersey corporate revolution that happens around this, around this time that you know really reinforces this idea of corporations as on the one hand like enjoying these massive privileges, but on the other hand as fundamentally private entities that are creatures of contract, and that just really wasn't the idea in nineteenth um, century jurisprudence. Like what, not even on the left right spectrum, but just it just wasn't the concept. And and so I'm just pointing to that period of time. Briefly, as in, and then you have you have like all these changes in antitrust law. You have, um, you know, U.S. Steel appear, appearing as like this big major industrial employer, and you have the employment modern employment relationship coming into its own, really, because it didn't before that, really, you know, and so you have all these things p- happening that are interrelated that reinforce each other, and in those moments of like great ferment, I think you can see people who had like a foothold in coordination rights in the, you know, like, if it was like, you had to have, some, I mean, it was some complicated mix of people who, who came out on top of that whole social ferment. Right. But like some of them were like in Lowe v. Lawler, the plant owner, he was a former journeyman hatter, actually. Like there's many stories of that, right. Like where it's like who rises and becomes a proprietary capitalist who sinks and whatever happens there. I mean, you know, Quote skilled and unskilled workers, although I don't believe in that distinction. But um, you know, craft or non-craft workers. Uh, anyway, the the point is that you, when you look at periods like that, I think you see in this like sort of outsized way people using their existing coordination rights to in- engineer new coordination rights. The reason I think I thought of the corporate law revolution in particular, although it's completely interrelated with these antitrust developments. And business and labor developments is that that's where you literally had, and the reason it happened in New Jersey is that you had people from the financial district in New York. You also have the consolidation of the financial elite in social terms happening not that long before this, you know? And, uh, you know, you can have their lawyers coming over and literally writing the new corporate law statute, you know, in New Jersey. And it's like geographically proximate. I guess there's a story you can tell about that that's very reductive. That's like people in power are always going to be in power. Except it's not quite like, it's just, yes, people are going to like, that's literally an example where people had outside, outsized coordination rights and they used it to increase those by writing a statute in which they were, you know, which, which uh, liberalized holding companies, which famously or infamously allowed them to magnify their coordination rights Right, through holdings, um, through through these like sort of pyramided holdings uh, and intercorporate stock ownership that occurs, but it doesn't occur, I think, in this totally deterministic way yeah. that yeah. we can't intervene in through whatever we do, whether, can yeah, so you know. Can
0: I, can I just yeah. bring up a contrast to this? Because I want to, you know, make clear the important point that Centric is making. And I, we get this, I mean, I, I know this because Centric and I are colleagues and professional collaborators, get this from both what I'll call the right and the left. So the idea that there's an inherent and inevitable uh, uh, trend towards greater consolidation and concentration of power due to economic productive efficiencies in the, Uh, constitution of firms, for example. You get that from both like traditional industrial organization scholars and economics that conceptualize increasing returns to scale, meaning that the economy is every sector in the economy is going to become inevitably monopolized over time, because the biggest and most or the most efficient firm is going to become the biggest firm. Um, You get that also from Marxists who basically say that economic concentration is an inevitable outcome of historical or economic processes and not the idea of like some lawyers going over from Wall Street to Trenton to write uh, corporate statute. So, you know, that really constitutes, I think, the the contingency that's inherent in the story, in, in the, uh, yes. uh, you know, unique story yeah. that Centric is telling. I mean, I want to also answer Andrew's original question in my own way, which is more concrete than the, you know, giant kind of conceptualization of what we're all doing here that Centric just gave us. Um, you know, I have been working for a long time on <laughs> this idea that uh, you know there's an antitrust case to be brought in the gig economy, basically, and it's owes a lot to uh just conception of coordination rights and the antitrust. Uh, uh, jurisprudence of vertical restraints that is the gig economy depends on controlling workers at a distance by use of vertical restraints and is inherently anti competitive um, if those workers are not employed at the firm. So it's like you either have to choose as a gig economy platform, you know, are you one thing that provides rideshare services and can control and direct what the rideshare uh, 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 workers do and, you know, in principle, therefore you would be their employer and owe them uh, responsibilities under uh, labor law, or are they independent in which case they should have these uh, the autonomy to charge what prices they want and so on um, and, and choose which platform they work for, or for which customer they work. So the the platforms, you know, assign uh, workers to customers and set the prices of those transactions in a very hands-on way while disclaiming employment responsibility. You know, when I, like when Senator earlier in this conversation referred to the uh, FTC officials basically saying that Uber is pro-competitive because it's efficient and it's efficient because it introduces surge pricing, which equates supply and demand in real time and means that their short wait times, um, uh, uh, by virtue of their, uh, uh, you know, the enormous sophistication of their software, or some some uh, uh, appeal of that of that kind, um, you know, they're basically buying into the idea that like coordination rights assigned to this dominant platform with hundreds of billions of dollars of Saudi venture capital money, um, you know, that that's productively efficient, and you know, I think it will aid the uh, uh, effort on behalf of uh, rideshare drivers and workers more broadly to reconceptualize that as being historically contingent and dependent on the uh, uh, non enforcement of antitrust laws against vertical restraints that is this business model would not be possible were it not for um, the erosion of of antitrust or conversely the expansion of the firm exemption to accommodate this business model that's like legally speaking across the boundaries of the firm but in fact uh, appeals to the idea that uh, a centralized authority in a firm sense Telling everyone what to do is uh, economically efficient. So, you know, I hope that there is a very real kind of political, I should say, payoff to reconceptualizing antitrust as being not about encouraging consolidation to bring about economic efficiency, but rather about who gets to tell what, to, who gets to tell whom what to do and to what extent. I
3: don't think that Marshall told the full story of his own personal motivations because there was no like intense uh, vendetta that he was avenging himself. (laughs) No, no, you're wrong about that.
1: Well, we know that the vendetta
0: exists.
3: Well, I I just said that you, I know you told an incomplete story because you neglected to mention whatever the underlying- underline.
0: I did mention it. I mentioned the economists who who wrote this letter uh, from the, when they were in, uh, senior officials at the FTC, they wrote a letter to Chicago City Alderman saying, don't regulate rideshare. They are efficient because of, of surge pricing, which eliminates wait times, and <laughs> that that is pro-competitive. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay, and, I just want to those economists that are exactly the the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the 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 relevant uh, vendetta that you're referring to. I of should course. say, Senchukta, you're not familiar with my entire life history, just as I'm not familiar with yours what Andrew is referring to is my long litany of enemies in the world of quiz bowl and the likes, oh, which I, I have gone. To I didn't just even just them. mean
3: the world of quiz bowl, Marshall. I, uh, I assume <laughs> you have a long list of enemies in all
0: walks of life. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know, they're, they uh, look, you look for them now in the words of the immortal uh, character. Of the <laughs> Rome series. Jerry, um, Jerry, do you mind? Sorry. Do you mind if I just ask a quick follow-up?
1: Uh, g- give me like one second here. Cause I wanted to piggyback on what Marshall said. And I thought that the way that he summed it up at the end was, uh, was very nice because you know, again, uh, I'm neither a lawyer nor economist, so I wouldn't I won't be making those sorts of arguments. But I think that if you were to sort of take this to, let's say, a public forum, like you would want to say exactly the thing that Marshall said, right? It's about who gets to tell whom what to do, right? And that's that's a very uh, concrete sort of thing that I think people understand, you know, quite viscerally because they're constantly being told what to do. So uh, you know, just having that in your arsenal, I think, has a lot of political utility.
0: Yeah, don't no, concede it. I think to, to get to the point no, that Sendhukta, right, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not telling you not to concede it. I'm just saying, you know, when Sendhukta was given this advice, you know, notionally five years ago or whenever it was, like, focus on employment law, argue that this is misclassification, that is taking as given that, you know, Uber gets to tell drivers what to do. <laughs> and we contest that. We do not right. accept that. And and I've, I, you know, a part of my frustration in all of this work. While on the one hand, it's extremely rewarding to be influenced by such groundbreaking scholars as Seneca. Um, you know, it's also like there are two, people who conceive of themselves as uh, advocates on workers' behalf basically do not break out of that box. It's like, you know, we are here to basically be the servants of the economy and like we're yeah. arguing over scraps to make, you know, the lot, the lot of a servant be, you know, slightly better than um uh subsistence or something like that. And it's like, yeah, okay, let's make servants lives a little bit better than they uh uh than they would be uh without us here. But it's like, no, I just reject the idea that workers are servants. I think that that's dehumanizing. And, you know, that that I think all of this is aimed at, at overturning that that assumption. Well, that that
3: leads into what I was going to ask pretty well, which is, you know, I, I raised the point of of sort of saying what's you know what's the uh, operational value essentially of making a correct argument uh, in a world where you know there's a lot of powerful forces that seem to just do you know want to do and 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 do in fact mostly do whatever they want. My question, my follow up is just a little bit to broaden that question is sort of the reason I asked it is to sort of say, uh, to, is to ask, like, what are your opinions about how to turn a right argument into a convincing argument? Uh, in other words, not just to be right on paper, but to, you know, to bring that to people and, and to, because, you know, you're, you, you might win a court so case with a right argument. Why do you but...
2: think we have expertise on this?
0: <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I was well, going to say, so I, So I'm... this question <laughs> is getting exactly at, at the question that I, the, I would say the most hostile question I could possibly have asked Sanjukta, which you basically just did, which is asking Sanjukta to do comms her her nemesis. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I
3: I I actually reject the notion that somehow, you know, uh being convincing reduces to public relations. Uh, I think well, that's I mean, actually think a very that that's yeah. like that's a very like, you know, uh insidious notion, I think. But uh no my my, my question is you know not not necessarily like how do you message it or whatever, but it's like how do you, you know, what I, I know that you're not gonna be on the front lines like, you know, mobilizing people that's you know people who are academics that they they do that because that's the the job that they're suited for you know people should have to you know build the thing and then go sell it you know or whatever i don't know what the right analogy is there but um but my question is what uh, maybe a better question or a more specific way of asking the same question is what kind of force behind that argument would one need in order to have it win you know uh, no, i think
2: it's- Good question it's a challenging question because you're right that's not just that's just not what i spend most of my like it's not the, i mean it's just not where my life force is aimed right now It's right, right. sort of like figuring out what is wrong with these arguments and how well to, and that's
3: and not i'm not saying like no, no, no. to be clear no, I'm, that's I'm, not your fault good, or anything i'm good, not saying like good, oh this is again, so bad getting, that pointy-headed academics are coming up with their papers the, and everything like it's good that pointy-headed well, academics are doing that sorry i'm sorry
2: uh, so, like, I, I was just trying to explain, like, that this, isn't, this isn't sort of mostly what I'm thinking about, but I think it's a good, it, it, it's, it, it, it's a valuable challenge uh, to break out of what you are doing and, and to think about it. And, and sort of like on that, you know, because I think so much of what like me and Marshall and others are doing is, it's not just sort of narrow in sort of the fact that we're academics, but narrow in the sense that I think, we do have our sites trained on, on a particular sort of set of theories that we think are wrong, you know, and that we want to bring down. I, I don't think it's going to, like, I don't think I'm going to find the one true theory. That's not sort of what I think about, but I think we can find a truer theory than these crappy theories that we use to describe the, you know, to explain the economy and to, and then ultimately to be the, you know, undergirding of the law. And I, I guess I just, I just embrace that that is something that we should do and not, like, it's, I will answer your question, but I wanna, it's not just, yeah, I, I really dislike comms as a profession, but it's, but it's like a a symptom of this. Like we immediately go to like, how do you convince people? And I, and I was a lawyer for 10 years, I'm just gonna say, and I was okay at it. And I didn't lead with that, even when I was a lawyer, because I think we do it too much culturally, I don't know. Like we, you know, even as a lawyer, it's just like, We underestimate juries. We underestimate dependents. You know, we just people respond to genuineness, I think, more than we think they do. So let's try that instead of sort of like assuming that whatever's genuine and true isn't going to sell and isn't going to convince people like let's actually just try to get it right. Let's try to get it a little truer and let's like share that with people and not talk down to them, you know, and then to to not. Just give a hostile answer, which I wasn't trying to do at all. But just more things I perceive in the culture. But also, but also then I feel like part of what you're saying is like instead of sort of just training yourself at this thing that you that is wrong and you know uh, that's re- that is the sort of a narrower academic theory, even if it suffuses society in various ways, like. Then I think the prompt is to reimagine economic coordination. I don't think this is like what I'm best suited for, like you kind of said, but I do think that it leads into sort of how can we open up, like even as Marshall said, even on the left wing, I think that there is a some closed-mindedness about sort of what the, you know, um what the forms of economic coordination could be, sometimes, not always, but sometimes. So I think that's one positive goal that's wider than the academies to, I think that's happening anyway. I don't like, certainly don't take any credit, you know, I mean, I think all the, the, that's that's happening in so many ways in the movements for, um, I I think just in so many ways, you know, the different cooperative movements across the economy, obviously labor organizing, um, but, when somebody goes and farms a smaller plot of land and i don't know like they're the, these are all like experiments in living that people are doing that are um imagining that other forms of economic coordination than the ones we've sanctified as the output enhancing out, output output maximizing ones um are valuable and and can be rewarding and um and and so i think that the challenge is for us in the academy to, when I view what our role in the academy is, I guess I don't view it as like leading movements because I don't think they need me to tell them what to do because I think, you know, but more clearing space, trying to clear space in these more like elite technocratic spaces for those things to flower um, as they should be given the space to do. And I see that as in the Smithian division of labor, my role.
1: I I just want to briefly jump off of that. uh, Because I think Sanjukta said something I think is really true, which is that maybe uh, there's a lack there's, you know, the left has a lot of good critiques of the way things are, uh, but not a whole lot of great, like, sort of constructive theories, I guess I would say. And, you know, to me, sort of, uh, kind of, coming at this from a completely different angle, you know, there was this, this question of like, you know, how do you coordinate production, for example, right? That's like a, the the socials calculation question, whatever you want to call it. Uh, That's obviously an age old question that has existed, you know, ever since, uh, you know, people tried to sort of apply advanced mathematics to, uh, to these problems, right? And I, I think it's safe to say that the traditional application has both proven like very very productive in the sense of like in the mathematical sense and also has not just worked at all right it's like uh, i mean linear programming is amazing and also it does not do the thing that people thought it would enable you to do just to give one example and so like there really does need to be kind of like a more broad imagining of like okay how are we going to set this up? Like, I mean, you know, imagine that tomorrow you had carte blanche to write your own economic order, right? How, what would it look like? Like, how would you delineate the boundaries between, um, between these different entities? Uh, you know, would we call them firms? Would we call them something else? Whatever, whatever it is. Right. And I think that like, we really need to take that project seriously. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's that's just and and the theories that you know at some point somebody is going to come along, right? And they're going to be looking for a good theory, right, to pick up to make use of. Um, and I think if you're, you know, if you are the kind of person who whose job is developing theories, like it's good to like you know be uh, uh, you know walking around and like putting your flyer under everybody's door, like hey, maybe you'll find this useful, like maybe. So anyway, that was that was my point.
2: One quick thought that I think is. Maybe that you at least your comment made me think of, which is that I feel like sometimes on the left, we are more upset, and it, I, this could reflect like my positioning or something, but I feel like we're a little too obsessed with the, the kind of exactly what you said, but theory building about what's wrong with the world, sort of like what, you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm just actually profoundly uninterested in whether, like, what the underlying cause of everything that's wrong is (laughs) like, you know what I mean? And I I think that that there's sometimes these like more unicausal or at least unilevel explanations. And this is gonna make people mad, I'm sure. But but for example, you know, a certain theory that you mentioned before, Marshall, uh, you know, that mirrors some of the theories that we spend our time attacking and that Also some versions of it seem to posit sort of that there's a dynamic of competition and it puts a sort of negative valence on that instead of a positive valence, like this is bad and destructive and alienating, but like there is this like kind of dynamic of competition and it leads to these outcomes. And I guess, I just, I I mean, I both sort of don't find that to be a particularly good description of the world because just as you can say it to the right wing, or to the centrist, that well, actually, competition is conditioned by these like contingent legal choices in all these ways. So you can also say that to the left wing that's using competition to sort of describe everything that's wrong with the world since 1770 or whenever they put the date of it happening, you know. Um, so I sort of both find it unconvincing, but secondly, also find the search for that type of theory also kind of like, so So, is it that or is it racial capitalism? I don't know. There's a lot of things wrong with the world. You know, there are like rich people who have too much power. There's white supremacy. There's patriarchy. Like, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not trying, I guess I just wish that we would spend a little more time. And this is, I think, harmonious with what you're saying, For those of us in the Smithian division of labor who are supposed to be coming up with theories like for all of us really like I wish that we would spend a little more time on the because I think as a pragmatic level we actually do need mid-level normative theories to guide law like that's actually something we need like I don't claimed to prescribed to movements but like for law we actually do need mid-level principles if we're throwing out the consumer welfare standard which is sort of meaningless and just a placeholder for a bunch of nonsense anyway but still if we're replacing that with some other mid-level standard or something like we should actually come up with like that level of theory building i do believe in and i think we should provide an in fact it's a very small drop in the drop in the bucket but the point of this lpe symposium that we're going to be putting out soon was to kind of do that where our individual academic work is either sort of much more fine-grained or much more at a 30,000 level, you know, that we that we should also be doing this. Like mid-level normative principles. So at least in law I I know there's other areas to do this, but in law um we should be coming up with that and i i just find that more i wish more of our intellectual labor was going there as opposed to like analyzing i'm not saying that we shouldn't analyze what's wrong in in terms of like telling the history of things i i I guess i do find that valuable but but in terms of sort of coming up with unicausal theories of what's wrong with what's wrong with the world like i i don't see how that's helping exactly because it's not i don't think it's helping to guide movements and i don't think it's helping like to drive technocratic change
1: I mean, I I mean, I think I think maybe like there's a there's a point to be made here that even if you're coming up with a unicausal theory, like whatever your theory is, right, you have to show your work, right? The work is in the details. So even if you say, okay, my theory posits that this, this particular set of like things is the causal agent of causative agent of change, like you still have to explain like the mechanistically, like, okay, how do these things hold together, right? And like, I think that actually doesn't matter like what at what level your theory exists. It's like, you have to fill in the blanks of like how this works. <laughs> that's just, that's just extremely valuable, no matter what level you're operating at.
2: Do you want to wrap it up Marshall?
0: Oh, Oh, with like some I grand peroration of, of conclusion. I think, I don't know. I thought this last uh, dialogue or, or uh, you know, oligopologue or whatever was uh, <laughs> a, a good, a good uh, uh, wrapping up.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this has been like super interesting. And again, I just want to say that I think that, you know, speaking strictly for myself, I'm obviously not somebody who's in a position of deciding anything uh, worth, you know, anything important. But, you know, when I read like your your paper that antitrust uh, as allocation of coordination, uh, antitrust as allocation of coordination rights... The things what what I I appreciated like two things about it. Number one, it was that it was written in an extremely accessible fashion, and I don't mean like dumbed down. I just mean like it really meant something and said the thing that it meant, which like is often something that's very difficult to get in a legal like in a lawyerly uh, text. Number one, and number two, it definitely made me think completely differently about and like about that whole process, right? Like it seems very obvious in retrospect, like, duh, like, why didn't I think of that? But there's a reason I didn't think of that, because I I didn't spend my time on this. And it was very illuminating to just like, read, you know, read this, what I took to be kind of an inversion of the standard, like the standard picture, where, you know, as you say, right, you are, you're kind of like, turning the the camera sort of inside out, looking at the broad scope of like the, the range of these rights, rather than kind of, looking inside, you know, let's say the firm as like, as like a little amoeba that, you know, you, where you're like picking at little different parts of it or like just, um, you know, examining these little cells that, you know, maybe orbited or something like that, you know, where those would be the workers or what have you. Both of those things are very much appreciated. And I think that like more people should just, uh, should just read your stuff. Cause it's like, it's very straightforward and like really explains, I think the, than what this project is about
0: i i mean i would definitely uh second everything jerry just said i feel like uh you know there's a lot of unhelpful wrangling and line drawing and position taking uh that you know kind of obscures the important insights that are pretty straightforward and not that hard to understand uh in Centric's work and and this project more broadly
2: well, that was the nicest possible compliment. <laughs> really, really means a lot. Thank you.
1: Like to close it out, we always want to ask people like, what are, you know, what are they working on? Obviously, you know, we know the the broad, the broad contours of what you're doing. We, we, we've talked about that. Like, what are you working on currently? Uh, do you have anything in the pipeline? And yeah, anything in particular you would like to plug?
2: Yes. Well, I am finishing this book and it's going to be finished like any, probably not gonna be like next month but like May or June I don't know exactly but I'm, I'm coming to like the end of a very long um process and I'm, I'm 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 it's good though because I'm excited to share it with the world you know like I don't think I was ready like certainly not five years ago and not even two years ago and now I'm like ready so I'm I'm super super excited to share it um and uh it will be out in 2023. What's the
0: title? You should say that.
2: The title is, um, and this is funny because I picked the title at the beginning of this period, when I knew a fraction of what I feel like I know now. And, but the title is still- Still works,
0: it still works, yeah.
2: Yeah, like I I, I actually, I feel like the book has grown into the title. The (laughs) title is uh, Solidarity in the Shadow of Antitrust and, and then the subtitle is labor and the legal idea of competition.
1: And, and so, and so, is it like going to be like this sort of grand synthesis of like all these theories that we can find in your papers?
2: Uh, it's very historical. And I'll
0: just say, having read some but not all of the chapters, it is extremely original, even above and beyond Senjuto's already quite original scholarship that you've already been familiar with.
2: Um, that's very kind. I'm excited for you to read the chapter. You. Just honestly, because I'm curious to get your thoughts. But, um, no, I mean, I think that the, the, the title has a little bit of this double meaning of sort of, you know, in, sort of initially sort of solidarity, you know, sort of there being um, this chilling effect on solidarity that I sort of first saw on the port trucking campaign when I first encountered antitrust Um, because I certainly didn't pay attention to it in law school, I will admit, (laughs) in the dark ages when I went to law school, Uh, and uh, so in that sense of, like, being in the shadow of, but there's also this, like, actually, I think it's, like, used in some bible verse, this idea of being in the shadow of, where it's actually, like, a constructive thing, you know, where something can protect and uh, nurture, Uh, and so that it is supposed to have, meant to have that of double meaning and and then the subtitle came a little bit later like more like four years ago and uh and that subtitle labor and the legal idea of competition i think is meant to then evoke so sometimes now we hear this idea of and i think this is important as an application just to be clear but like this idea of um you know, we need to apply antitrust to labor markets. We haven't been doing that. And so, Eric Posner famously has said that there's no problem with the current methods of antitrust. There's no problem. We just haven't extended it to labor markets and that's the problem, you know? And I'm sure there's some overlap, you know, in in terms of applications between us and Eric Posner, and, you know, even theoretically there's some overlap, but in a way, The orientation of that subtitle is the exact like obverse of that statement because the idea is that by looking kind of deeply at the legal history of these labor traditions in you know co-evolving with with the legal history of antitrust, uh, that that gives us a very different perspective on antitrust as a whole. Not I'm the book is sort of not about how to apply antitrust to labor markets, although I hope it. I hope it informs that in some way, but, you know, but it's more about how does looking deeply at labor and in this, in this longitudinal way, inform our understanding of antitrust.
1: Awesome. Well, can't wait to read it. Thank you. We'll have to have a whole other,
0: we'll have to have a whole other podcast episode when when we can, or or several for that matter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This was really fun.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate
3: it. You were very generous with your time and we really, really appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh,
2: yes, it was great. It was super okay. fun. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Adios.